We're continuing our series looking at Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Today reading from chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. If you're following in the church Bibles, this is on page 1148. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. So, another hard-hitting chapter from Paul to the church in Corinth. We remember that Peter Hubbard, our vicar, in the introduction to this series, reminded us that Corinth at the time was a typical port city, a transient population with sex workers, both male and female, servicing the needs of their clients. Corinth had a temple to Aphrodite. Perhaps she was misnamed as the goddess of love because it was far from love. Because in reality, her temple employed some 1,000 prostitutes to service the baser needs of both men and women, which in turn brought enormous wealth to the city. Paul introduces the section we've just heard read with a saying that was being bandied around by the Corinthian Christians. Knowing that they were free from the restriction of the Jewish law, they said, and in one translation, it's all things are lawful to me. In the version we've just heard read, it says, I have the right to do anything. And it could have been a much repeated jingoistic chorus of their day. We can just imagine them singing it six or seven times, can't we, at the start of their services? <laughs> or maybe seven. <laughs> But it's a catchphrase which ideally refers to the freedom that Christ brings to the new covenant. But it had become distorted 
by those who were using it to justify behaviour that, to put it bluntly, was contrary to the gospel and was self-serving, was sinful. Sadly, this is a catchphrase that might well suit today's culture, isn't it? I can do anything. It's my choice. We're repeatedly told through adverts, social media and other cultural influences. But as believers, Paul tells us we need to take care that in our freedom we do not allow ourselves to be mastered by anything that would harm us or distort our relationship with our Heavenly Father. In an indirect allusion to sex, Paul uses the stomach as a metaphor to make his point. Just as the stomach was made for food, so our bodies are sexual. Therefore, anything goes, was the cultural thinking. It sounds familiar, doesn't it, in today's culture? Anything goes. Yes, we have freedom from the law, but we also have God-given guidelines to live by. Guidelines that bring hope and life and true freedom, rather than shame and bondage and death. Although our bodies were made to enjoy sex, not every way that we use them is profitable. I was thinking about um, other parts of the body we use for things that um, we can use them for, but they're not ideally used for. And I guess for me, one of the prime examples is our teeth. Every week I see a procession of people who've used their teeth for various things like biting sellotape, opening cans, um, doing goodness knows what, holding nails, trying to pull things out of something that's stuck. And they turn up in my surgery with their teeth broken. And it's the same with our sexual parts. Unless we use them for the purpose God intended, we will be broken people. We're told by Paul that our bodies are not immortal, but there's a sense in which our physical bodies are important and have an importance which is eternal, says Paul in verse 13, towards the end of the verse. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The Greeks thought of the soul as separate to the physical body, and therefore the physical consequences of mistreatment did not impact the state of the soul. And it's this pagan belief, drawn from thinkers such as Plato, which has infiltrated the Corinthian church, and which Paul is seeking to address in this chapter as he contrasts the cultural belief at the time with his magnificent closing remarks. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. The implication here is that how we use our bodies, what we engage with, can have lasting implications. It could be that Paul was thinking particularly here of the Corinthian norm of visiting temple prostitutes. How can you, who are temples of the Holy Spirit, 
think it is of no consequence to join in sexual union with a temple prostitute who is given to the service of a pagan god. We can hear the yearning in Paul's voice as he argues for the faith of these Christians. Do you not know, he repeats again and again, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Just because we can, does that make it right? Are our choices profitable, healthy, bringing life, encouraging and developing the life of the Spirit within us, asks Paul. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, used a story to illustrate this point. There was once a tyrant who ordered one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith, for that was his occupation, had to go to work and forge the the chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant and he was ordered to take it away and make it twice its length. He brought it again to the tyrant, and again he was ordered to double it. Back he came when he had obeyed the order, and the tyrant looked at it, and then commanded his servants to bind the man hand and foot with the chain that he had made, and cast him into prison. Sexual immorality is addictive. It builds its own chains. It can draw us in little by little, lengthening the chains of bondage until it holds us tight and we feel there's no way out. That's why Paul tells us to flee from it. Remember the story of Joseph in Genesis running from Potiphar's house rather than have illicit sex. Who is our master? In whose presence do we live? We've just prayed, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may perfectly love you. Are there things or behaviours that keep us bound and chained rather than experiencing the freedom that only Christ can bring? And just as in the Corinthians day, so it is in our day, it's impossible to avoid the overt sexualisation of so much of our television, our music, our culture. The day I realised that a colleague viewed sex as a recreational right was the day I started to feel old and out of touch. Paul tells us, as he told the Corinthians, that even though we are surrounded by sexual immorality, we can choose not to engage intimately with it or be subject to it. But... Christians, too, can find themselves enmeshed or addicted to immoral behavior. There can be depths of depravity involved that stink of the demonic, but there can also be the subtle, the less obvious, the it's not such a sin or it's not hurting anyone self-justification. Some might read a book or view a film in total innocence 
and experience no arousal. But for others, it could be a very different experience, drawing them into immoral thought or behavior. So we need to be on our guard. As 1 Peter 5 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. So, we need to be alert. We need to be aware of the sensitivities of our consciences. As C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. But there's also good news here for those who have been drawn into the pernicious web immorality weaves. There is a way out. Over the years, as I've listened to folk in distress because of ill-advised immoral behavior or because they have been sinned against intimately, I've seen over and over again the powerful role that shame plays in keeping these things hidden in the darkness. With folk too ashamed to even speak the words that would bring light and truth into the hidden world of shameful darkness. Shame robs us of freedom, keeps us bound and silent we lose our way in shameful isolation. It's not what God wants for his people, not what God wants for any of us. Jesus went to the cross so we could walk in his freedom. It's almost impossible, isn't it, to avoid sexual images and innuendos and invitations to engage with pornography in our culture today. That's why accountability to each other is so important. That's why we should not let the power of shame stop us from accessing forgiveness and freedom if we have let temptation lead us into sin. As the chapter draws to a close, although Paul's theme continues, as we shall see next week, when we look at sexuality in the context of relationship. Here, Paul returns to one of the foundations of our faith. Not only is the whole church God's new new temple, but as individual Christians, we are too, God's temple. We are people who have been brought with a high price. God lives within each of us in the person of the Holy Spirit all the time. Whether we're engaged in religious activity or not, he doesn't make a distinction. And neither does he go on holiday when we sin, when we give in to temptation. Instead, he grieves. The Holy Spirit within us grieves. Glorify God in your body, says Tom Wright. Discover how to live the truly human life which brings glory to the God in whose image you are made and whose own unique image, his son Jesus, died to rescue you from all that will stop you being the person he longs for you to be. 
Finally, in closing, let me just share something. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and lead me into the way everlasting. We're all tempted, aren't we, every day in all sorts of ways, in all areas of our lives. During the summer, we watched a series of videos, and in one of them, the speaker explained how he had discovered the practice of prayerfully looking back over each day before he slept. He was actually describing a centuries-old method of contemplative prayer, reviewing the day. There are several variations, but essentially it involves recalling God's presence with us throughout the day and giving thanks to him for the day, and then prayerfully looking back over the day and asking, where did I sense God's presence? Where might I have grieved the Holy Spirit? And then looking at the need for repentance and perhaps forgiveness or forgiving others. And then finally praying for the day ahead. I found as I've prayed this, and I I learned this as a child, this method of prayer, and although I don't always get it right, it's been a real blessing to help me keep short accounts. And the value of it has increasingly become obvious as I've grown older. For as John tells us, 1 John, if we pray this every night, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal in us anything that might have grieved him, then the light of God's presence, his Spirit, will guide us into all truth. Amen.